Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the question on everybody's mind right now is how do we get back to normal and what's that going to look like? We'll talk about that on the show today. The Ontario government says the current modeling numbers show that we have hit the peak of COVID-19 pandemic early. We'll talk about those ramifications. And the U.S. president is wanting to suspend immigration into the United States due to COVID-19. Reggie Cicchini from Washington will join us to talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The discussion now in many places in North America seems to be going around to, well, is it time to return to normal, whatever normal might be? How quickly should we transition? Uh, Tough, tough questions to be asking right now. And I think a lot of politicians, well, are are looking at this in different ways. Uh, Some, of course, like the the governor of the state of Georgia, I guess just wants to turn everything back the way it used to be about six months ago. Not so sure that's the smartest thing to do. But uh, how do we do it up here? I mean, how do we do, how do we get this economy back together again uh, without risking, obviously, another peak that could happen? Well, let's talk to Marvin Ryder, business professor at the Degree School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, good morning. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. Good. Glad you could join us today. Uh, this is interesting, the way the conversation has turned. Uh, I, 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 I'm thinking we should tread lightly, though. What, what's your read on this? <laughs> Right. Well, although we shut down the economy very quickly, you know, the orders were issued and suddenly there, everyone was to stay at home, when we go to reopen, it's got to be in a phased approach. And the reason it has to be a phased approach is no one wants a second wave of this virus. We don't want to have isolated in place for whatever it winds up being, eight weeks, ten weeks, twelve weeks, and then have to go back to do it a second time. So we only want to open the economy back up once and get it right. A phased approach means that likely when you get the all clear, uh, a restaurant might be able to reopen, but it won't be able to reopen at full capacity. That what they'll do is have social distancing, meaning there'll be a table here and there'll be a table over there, maybe half capacity or third capacity, and we'll do that for some period of time, let's say two to four weeks, monitoring constantly, testing constantly just to make sure the virus isn't coming back, and then we can relax that a bit more and relax that a bit more. So then the hope would be after, say, three months of this phased approach, four months, we'd be back to some kind of normalcy. The other fear, of course, is that even if we can defeat COVID-19 now, uh, this is a bit like SARS, it happened in the spring of the year, when you get the heat of the summer, many of these viruses seem to go away, But if it should recur in the fall or, let's say, in January of 2021, I think the world is going to be better equipped to shut things down much more quickly, meaning that we we won't go back into lockdown necessarily, but if a hot spot flares up in, I'll just make up something here and say Florida, we know then how to shut Florida down and isolate it so it doesn't get around to the rest of the world. We were slow, for lack of a better term, to isolate when it broke out in China, and I think we know better now if we get a second wave how to deal with it. Well, we're going to be a little bit closer to a vaccine by then, too, if, in fact, that's what's going to happen. And I'm not necessarily sure we'll have one, but they seem to be working in that direction. So you you mentioned, as as the example, the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry, which, of course, has been hurting, as everybody has these days. Let's let's talk. We'll go a little further up here to the manufacturing sector. Some of these places have been shut down, or at least uh, have been reduced uh, significantly because of uh, what's going on and the the concern about physical distancing. Do you just open the doors and say, "Okay, everybody back"? I I, I see what they're doing in New York these days with Governor Cuomo. Is uh, okay, you can go out now, but you got to wear a mask if you're going to go out. You have to have gloves on. I mean, uh, do we set those sorts of standards? Right. So uh, take precautions. And again, in that first wave. 
because that will be the first baby steps as we try to restart the economy. I think, again, the abundance of caution notion is lots of personal protective uh, gear. So it could be masks uh, uh, when you're in the workplace. It could be um, uh, more hand-washing, hand-sanitizing. It could be some gloves. Uh, it could even be limited hours. You know, you'll be able to work your, open your workplace, but you'll only be able to do it for four hours a day rather than eight hours a day. Uh, and that they'll, they'll try some of the same thing goes with manufacturing. There are some manufacturing sites, Bill, take a, a car manufacturer where the, the um, robots do so much of the work, and although mm-hmm. there are humans there, they are not densely located, you might be able to reopen that almost full blast. But there are other places where people, have, if they have to be in close proximity, you're, again, you're likely going to do a phased approach. And even when we talk about restarting the economy, again, it's something you have to balance is supply and demand. We don't want to have a situation where some factory goes back full tilt producing, but there's nobody there to buy, or vice versa. Suddenly people are wanting to buy, but there's no product. We've got to try to find that balancing point. And we've never tried, this is speaking now on a global basis, we've never tried on a global basis to restart the economy the way we're going to have to do after COVID-19. Do we have the discipline to do it the way you're suggesting? <laughs> well, my first answer, my, and I hate to have laughed at you there, is no. Um, you know, I'm watching the United States. God bless. I haven't seen it in Canada to the same extent, but these protests in Michigan and Virginia mm-hmm. and California, I want it to go back to normal, and I want it now. That shows you that people probably do not have the discipline to do that. Canadians, maybe it's because of the way we are or our culture. I think we are showing more discipline than the Americans, but we, we again, we have to be patient here. The worst, the nightmare scenario is that we've hunkered down like this for whatever length of time. The government's borrowed the billions and billions it's done to support people through this, and then we suddenly try to rush to get back to normal, and COVID rears its head and is worse than ever before. We have to, to be restrained and do this stepwise. Uh, yeah, I mean, some of the protests down there are just ridiculous. They, some people, they've got signs that said they need a haircut. I mean, really? I, I, do they not watch the news? Do they not see what's actually happening here? You have to ask yourself whether they understand the gravity here. Well, you, you know, Bill, and I don't, I'm not trying to suggest that anything our government has done is wrong, but the numbers in Canada, because we've social distanced, are so low that there are a lot of people who don't know anyone who had COVID-19. Oh, we'll read about high-profile cases. We have the terrible story coming out of Los Angeles of the Hamilton actor Nick Cordero who's lost yeah. a leg because of all of this. But it doesn't exactly touch me personally. Nobody in my family has had it. And, and that's good. You know, God bless that we were so successful at, at social distancing that you don't know somebody. But then the fallback is, that well, if I don't know anybody, maybe it's not really real. Maybe we're overblowing it. Let's try to get back. And, and you've got to say to people, almost like radioactivity, I can't see it, I can't touch it, I can't smell it but it's absolutely deadly. You've got to think of COVID in almost that exact same way. So with that in mind, though, and we're always concerned, at least the people that are going to be making the decisions, most of them anyway, uh, are cognizant of the fact that we don't want a second spike because we saw what happened in Philadelphia back in 1918 when they just said, okay, everybody, come on out now. And more people died in that period, in that second wave, than, than died in the First World right. War, for heaven's sakes. So we, we don't want a repeat of that. But the concern here is, can we do phased in, or is everybody going to jump in here? And how do you police something like this? For instance, if you, if you open a restaurant, we've got some great restaurants here in Hamilton, yeah. as we know, and say, okay, you can only let uh, 20 people in here. Uh, are we going to have bylaw people sticking in there to make sure there's only 20 and not 50? 
Well, I think uh, two, two different answers to that question. You know, I think we have done a pretty good job of social distancing without the police come knocking on my door, going door to door to door. And, and you'd like to believe that most people get it. But we're probably going to have to have that ability for someone to turn in someone who's not playing by the rules. In other words, if there was a restaurant who said, rules be damned, I'm going to let 500 people in here, then hopefully we'd have somebody who could blow the whistle on them and we would dispatch somebody to say, no, you can't go in that road. But I'd like to try to do it by appealing to people's best behavior and then deal with the exceptions as they come up. Well, and, and I guess that's going to also be a reflection on, on how we view this. I mean, I, as we talked about a week or two ago, Marvin, I think there's going to be a certain trepidation with some people saying, I'm not so sure if it's safe to go back out there right. now. I, I may want to dip my toe in the water, but I don't think I'm dump, jumping into the deep end. Right, or I want someone else to go first. I think it's often the yeah. case as well. I'm, I'm brave, right but you. I'm not that brave. Why don't you go first? T- think of airlines. You know, right now, to the extent airlines are even flying, and, and 90% of flights have been canceled worldwide, but they're only flying at half capacity. They're using a checkerboard seating pattern, nobody sitting immediately beside somebody else, and then there's nobody immediately in front of you or behind you in the plane as well. Um, and that seems to be working for them. But, you know, when I give you the all clear and say, well, now you can hop on a flight and go to Florida, will you do that? The, the, the brave ones will be the first to go. And then if they don't seem to have a problem, other people will follow suit. It does go pretty quickly. If you can remember after things like 9-11, we did let other people go first. And then when nothing bad happened, we build on that. We can get momentum. But it does take months, not days, not hours, to get back to normal. All right. Listen, we've got about a minute and a half left. I know your time is tight. I appreciate this. But uh, if we're talking about economic recovery, i got to ask you, what is going on with the price of oil? Yeah. Well, there's two different prices, Bill. There's something called Brent crude, and that's the worldwide benchmark, and it's still trading at around $20, $22 a barrel. But the, the one that got everyone's attention yesterday was the West Texas Intermediate, and that uh, is oil that is being delivered in Texas, and the way that contract works is on one day every month, those contracts come to fruition. Today is the day, and that is for delivery on May 1st. Well, at this very moment, nobody wants that oil. Nobody wants any oil from Texas because every barrel, every tank, every ship is full of oil. There's something like 300 million barrels of oil worldwide just sitting in storage. And so as this contract comes to expire, it's like a hot potato I don't want it. Here, you take it. Well, I don't want it. You take it. And yesterday, what happened? First time in history, the price of that oil that was to be delivered on May 1st went negative, meaning I'm going to pay you to take it off my hands. If we look at the West Texas Intermediate Contract for June, which expires in May, uh, that contract is still trading at around $15, $20 a barrel. It's to the positive. But yesterday it got so negative at one point it was negative $36. I'll pay you $36. And that's, that's kind of the, the problem we've got when we shut down the economy as effectively as we have. Nobody is driving. Nobody's buying oil. I actually this week is that OPEC is going to accelerate its shutdown. That was supposed to happen on May 1st. But given what's going on with WTI, I think you're going to hear them uh, cut deeper and start earlier. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Marvin, as always, thanks so much. We'll uh, stay in touch. Glad to be with you, Bill. Uh, we'll uh, check in with him again in just a little bit. And, and this is the concern I think a lot of people have is, you know, we've been hunkered down for so long, and so many folks are getting you know, a little cabin fever, really. 
and just aching for the chance to go out and have dinner at a restaurant or, you know, we've all got our favorites. And we know that they're suffering like a lot of other uh, businesses are suffering. And we want to get back out there. We want to get back out there and go to the grocery store where we don't have to line up before we can do this. And and I, I'm sharing. I'm with you. I, I, I understand exactly how we're feeling about this. But as we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, I, I, I think the best way to go here is the way that most of our political leaders are, are suggesting, including the prime minister, including our premier, and uh, and, the, and the mayor, Fred Eisenberger, of course, uh, who's a member of the Emergency Operation Committee. And I know they talked about this. They have daily meetings. Uh, I'm having one right now, as a matter of fact, a virtual meeting, and we're going to get uh, the lowdown on that a little bit later on today. But, but Paul Johnson, who's the manager of Emergency Operations Center, I, I think put it quite succinctly yesterday uh, when he says, look, it, we have done pretty well so far. We have to keep people doing the things they've been doing in hamilton it is working and and this is the this is the message i want to put out there is what we're doing is having some effect there may be other factors to it but i can tell you it's the things we're doing that are having that effect and that's the key element to this is we have fashioned the the numbers that are going on here and we talked about that when we had these projections from governments in the last little while and we were scared by some of them and maybe even some in some sense of disbelief but we were told look at if we do what we're supposed to do with physical distancing and with isolation that those numbers would be better and as a result paul johnson tells us that well maybe it is time to have some of those discussions about moving forward this is where we will start to turn our attention in the coming days. We expect we'll, we'll start to have those first conversations at some point this week and, and over the next couple of weeks because as we head into May, I think that's the time where people see some discussion happening about what the next steps take. Which could be, well, who knows? I mean, let's face it, there have been discussions about opening up the golf courses. Uh, that seems to be a sore point for an awful lot of people. Opening up the uh, the natural trade, the trays, the conservation authorities uh, that, that we tend to gravitate to and flock to as a matter of fact at this time of year Uh, but the concern here is that we can't have everybody going at once because then we're right back to square one again my guess is there's going to have to be some compromise here as we're probably going to see the city slowly but surely move in that direction and it it might start with something like conservation authorities in other words open spaces Uh, but i think there's still going to be a requirement that we have to acknowledge physical distancing and, and maybe even protective gear, such as what they're doing in New York State, where they're saying, look, at, uh, you want to walk down Broadway now? Knock yourself out, okay, but you still have to keep that six-foot difference between you and whoever else, and you also have to wear a face mask. And we all know that uh, the face mask is not protecting you unless you're wearing one of the surgical uh, masks. Uh, what it is is making sure that your stuff, uh, that, 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 that whether you're coughing or sneezing, doesn't spread all over the place. And uh, I, we've got to be cautious about this, I guess, over the next little while. But it's going to be interesting to see how just it, if this is going to roll out in the next little while. But the fact that we're even having this conversation and, and that our, our political leaders and our medical experts are, are seemingly saying, yeah, it's time to start talking about this, uh, but let's just keep an eye on the numbers at the same time. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we've been saying, our political leaders and uh, in consultation with our uh, medical experts uh, are starting to look at some of the numbers now and some of the trends and saying, well, maybe it's time to have a discussion about coming out the other side from this pandemic. Uh, optimism, eh, I'm not so sure if that's maybe too strong a word, but uh, even the premier seemed to see some good news in some of the figures yesterday. We should all be proud that as a province, we stepped up. We face this enemy head on. We did not shy away from difficult decisions. We did the right thing. We listened to the experts and thanks to our collective efforts, 
thanks to all of you, we have so far avoided the worst case scenario that we were all dreading. That's uh, Premier Doug Ford yesterday. Uh, I'm not so sure if it's smart for us to be talking in the past tense about this. I think we're still going through this. But what do these numbers mean, and, and how do we track exactly what's going on? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Chris Bow, full professor at the Un- and university research chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics at University of Waterloo. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Well, hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Let's talk, let's, can we talk a little bit about analytics here? And I think that's maybe where a lot of folks are getting confused about tracking this. And we all talked about, you know, flattening the curve and things of this nature. Uh, but there are still new cases that we're hearing about all the time. Should we be optimistic? Or I, I know I'm, I'm hearing some people saying, hey, we've tamed the beast. I, I think that's a little overly uh, optimistic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so flattening the curve just means that we're getting roughly the same number of new cases every day. Uh, and the reason that's significant is that once you reach that point, uh, if you continue your physical distancing efforts, it means that the cases will start going down. Um, so, so that's why people are so excited about the flattening the curve. Um, but, but you're right that we can't get too excited because in order for cases to start declining, uh, we need to continue our efforts. And so we can't let our guard down totally. Uh, otherwise, um, there might be a resurgence of cases if, if, if we relax too soon uh, and too much. I've heard some experts, and, and we're looking at stats from all over North America, specifically, of course, that's the media that we seem to be inundated with. Uh, and they look at these and say, well, it looks as if we've peaked. How can we tell that necessarily? We have to look at trends over a period of time. So there's always up and down in the numbers because there's some randomness to it. Um, but if on average we see that the number of, of, of new cases coming in uh, per day is, is roughly the same, uh, except for some, some random up and downness to it, then, then we think we've flattened the curve. Um, now, we don't know uh, for 100%. I mean, in principle, it could continue going like that for many months. But we do know from experience in other jurisdictions, uh, like some European countries, uh, Italy, that once we reach this point, then you know, as long as we keep doing our distancing, the cases will start to climb after a while. But are, are we mi- missing some of the ingredients to to have that happen on a consistent basis to actually see a decline in some of these things? Because two of the other things we've always been told that has to be part of this equation are testing and tracking. And, and from all indications, we're falling way behind where we should be. Absolutely. So in some sense, we're kind of only getting an incomplete picture because we need more testing. And having that testing would give us more confidence so, you know, I, I think um, um, the idea that we're flattening a curve is it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's a guess based on the best available information, based on the imperfect picture we have from the tests. But let's face it, you know, no, no jurisdiction has a complete picture because testing is imperfect everywhere. Um, so um, it, it would be good to have more testing. Uh, we could control it faster with more testing and with more contact tracing. Um, uh, but even, you know, with our impartial efforts so far, it seems like we're flattening the curve. And I think most of that eff- most of that is due to our physical distancing. So I think the reason why um, we can expect cases to decline in the coming weeks is this intensive physical distancing we've been doing, school and workplace closure, uh, standing six feet apart at the supermarket, et cetera. Uh, and contact tracing, even though it's imperfect, uh, it does help with that. Um, but you're absolutely right. We, we could be doing better, and we you know, we should be doing more testing if, if we can. 
April 3rd, it was a rather ominous day. That was the day that the Premier said he was going to give us the straight goods on this stuff. And the numbers that they revealed that day were pretty frightening, actually. They said Ontario could see 80,000 cases and about 1,600 deaths by the end of April. Well, the uh, the numbers they showed us yesterday, they said, well, maybe less than 20,000 and uh, maybe... Uh, Number of quite a few number of uh, fewer cats, maybe three hundred thousand deaths, as opposed to something was going on before. But as I was reminded yesterday, as I was reading some of these materials, uh, these were projections, and and projections are not predictions, are they? No. So the projections they make assumptions, uh, and if those assumptions are invalid, then the projections are invalid. Uh, so in this case, the original projections uh, uh, assumed a much more lenient degree of physical distancing. Uh, and th- those were the scenarios that were giving us 80,000 cases, 300,000 cases. Um, but as it turns out, the physical distancing has been really taken up by the population, which, which is great. So people are, are doing their job, uh, making, uh, you know, doing their best to, to implement these recommendations. And because the um, public's response has been uh, so much more supportive than the earlier projections assumed, we're a- we've been able to uh, uh, peak earlier and have fewer cases so far. So, so that's... Um, so that's what happened in that situation. What, what's the bellwether that we should be looking for to say, whoops, we're, we're, we're slipping? Obviously, numbers are going to be some sort of an indicator. But I'm getting the sense that as, as we're going through this process, because uh, we keep hearing about a, a second wave or something still may come here, uh, you know, hospitals are still clearing out beds now in anticipation that there's going to be a rush uh, from people with all of you know new cases, etc. Uh, if we practice this, if we continue this, uh, can can we defeat that second wave, that curve as well? Yeah, we can. And and I like to use the kind of metaphor of um, Superman stopping a speeding locomotive. I think he actually ran faster than it, but let's let's pretend he's stopping it. <laughs> so the virus is the locomotive. Superman is is our physical distancing. And a funeral locomotive is is several persons who can provide fuel for the outbreak. Um, so you know Superman can can stop that locomotive uh, and reverse it, but he, but he has to keep on applying a force. And as soon as he stops doing that, the locomotive will keep going forward. And that's what the kind of situation we're in. So a second wave uh, will happen um, if if we relax our guard too much, if if uh, if we reopen too quickly. Um, if, if we stop washing our hands, etc. So that's basically a, a, a guarantee. Um, all the models predict that. All the epidemiological data predict that. Um, so um, absolutely. So I, I think there's still reason to be nervous about a second wave, uh, and it would happen if if we let our guard down too quickly. Which is, I guess, the the thing that a lot of folks are looking at here now. We, when we talk about maybe opening restaurants partially or opening golf courses, that seems to be a very sore point with an awful lot of people. But, you know, for those that are suggesting, well, I want to go back to the movie theater, or, hey, I want to go and watch uh, a baseball game, uh, I, I get the sense from, from what you're suggesting here and the possibility of that second wave that uh, that may not be the best advice and the best strategy at this stage. That's right. And I think going forward we'll have to consider things like, you know, who has the most need uh, and what have other countries tried which have worked. You know, for example, Germany is, is allowing businesses of a certain square footage to open first. Um, so there will be different proposals, different approaches, uh, and probably we'll have to um, reopen things first that are, are uh, um, if I could say, less uh, less not essential or, or, you know, somewhere on the borderline. So so maybe we can't go to ball games anytime soon, um, uh, but, you know, perhaps we will it will be okay to reopen parks. So it'll, it'll, it'll probably be a phased process where, you know, we, we gradually work our way back to the, you know, a 
time when we can go to baseball games. But I, I think baseball games, as one example, is that's pretty far in the future, unfortunately. Uh, we'll have to kind of go step by step, reevaluate as time goes on. Uh, and if we're still keeping the case, the case count under control, um, you know, then we can reevaluate and then, and then try to relax a bit further. But we can't relax too much too quickly. Did we go too far and overreact to what we saw in Europe? And the reason I'm asking is because one of the examples everybody seems to be bringing up these days is the way Sweden is handling this with very minimal restrictions, uh, nowhere near what we've done here in North America. And, I mean, knock on wood, so far so good. They seem to be doing pretty well. Yeah, so Sweden is still an unfolding uh, social experiment, if I could call it that. Mm-hmm. So they're doing well at the moment, but their cases at the moment are actually growing much more rapidly than, than many other countries. Um, so uh, it, it's not only the physical distancing that matters, um, it's also how well chronic conditions are managed in the country and how well they can, they can contact, trace, uh, and, and test. I think a better example is actually uh, South Korea because they had excellent testing capabilities and contact tracing capabilities, and they were able to control their outbreak largely through that with limited physical distancing. Um, so, and Germany is another good example of a, of a success story. Um, their death rate is a lot lower than Italy's because they have such great management of chronic care, management of diabetes and, and, and heart disease. Um, so, so there are other things that come into it, uh, and. Um, but the Sweden example, you know, actually their, their cases are growing pretty quickly right now because they're not doing enough physical distancing. Now, that could or could not translate into more deaths. It really depends upon their hospital capacity and how well they, they manage chronic conditions. But they're not flattening the curve. Is there going to be a, a, a more intense and maybe a, a, a different approach to health care uh, as a result of this when we do come out of this on the other side, whenever that might be, uh, vis-a-vis long-term care, vis-a-vis uh, uh, preventative medicines, things of this nature? Yeah, I, I think so, uh, for sure. It's hard to predict at this point what, what might happen. Uh, I remember from the previous uh, pandemics, you know, SARS and the 2009 pandemic, that there were some changes uh, for example, we saw more hand dispensers, um, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, the elbow bump developed as a kind of way of saying hello. So, so there were changes that happened in the way we relate to each other after those pandemics. After COVID, it'll be the same. I just don't know what exactly will happen. And it, it's, it's always hard to predict because so many things can still happen in the next uh, in the coming months. Yeah, we tend to have short memories. I still remember an awful lot of people saying, well, never let a pandemic like that SARS thing happen again. And, well, here we are. So, uh, exactly. And there's a political will involved in this, too. There's so many variables. Uh, Chris, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for giving us uh, your point of view on this. I always appreciate talking with you. Thanks. Okay, thanks, Bill. Have a good day. That's uh, Professor Chris Bow, of course, University Chair in uh, University of Waterloo. And great to get the analytical end of things to see exactly what's going on. Uh, and we have noticed uh, healthcare facilities and, and operations pivoting on this and, and learning as we go along here. And that, that's, as we've said all along, this, this is a two-pronged approach to this pandemic. One, of course, is treating the people that, that have the virus. The other is finding out what we can do in a preventative way. And as we talked about, it's two of the things that we always need to do here. Well, we've talked three, really, because one of them is going to be physical distancing. But the other, of course, is testing and tracking. And uh, the folks at St. Joe's have come up with a pilot project right now, and there's St. Joseph's Healthcare System in Niagara Health, uh, that uh, may actually address that, uh, dealing with asymptomatic patients. Dr. Tom Stewart is the CEO at St. Joseph's Health System in Niagara, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to explain this. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad to have you with us today. Pleasure to be here, Bill. Thanks for having me on. 
Doctor, talk to us a little bit about about tracking and about testing. And it, it seemed to be a very contentious point through this whole process uh, that we're still going through right now. But, uh, talk to us about the project that St. Joe's is embarking upon. Actually, you've already started doing this, so it, we uh, you, you've seen off the right off the top, I guess, Doctor, the importance of of testing, and and you've broadened that scope more so than than we had initially done when we started doing testing on some people. Well, you have to remember this is a new new enemy that we're fighting. We haven't dealt with this one before. And so all of our experiences from um, previous um, events and, and you, you know, you're not, this is a new virus and, and may go a different way. It's uh, when doesn't take much to realize that we are hearing now we've uh, real, I think we've done a great job in your listeners. Everyone's been involved in terms of social isolation and distancing. And we really mm-hmm. have flattened the curve, which is great news. The hospitals, which were prepared for an Italy-like experience, which they should have done, um, have really been successful in terms of um, flattening that curve and um, not having as many critically ill patients or hospitalized patients as we expected. So that's fantastic news. But now you see that a lot of the outbreaks and whatnot are in uh, the vulnerable populations that are living together, where it's, whether that's long-term care homes, retirement homes, transitional care, um, um, any congregate setting where there is uh, patients vulnerable. And so um, we made a decision with our leadership team to better understand those patients and get in now and test all patients and staff before they have symptoms or before there's an outbreak just to get a sense, is there patients sitting there that are asymptomatic now that may actually cause an outbreak down the road? And so that's exactly why we're doing it. We've done some already. We're doing the rest this week. We're testing roughly 3,000 residents or patients and staff, um, staff that are volunteering to do it. And we'll get a lot more data. Um, Across a few homes in Ontario, there's there's pilots going on to look at this. And I I expect aligned with the Premier's words that we will be pivoting and taking a new strategy of testing as many of these patients, whether symptomatic or asymptomatic, as we can going forward. Yeah, well, that's. I, I had the premier on the show last Friday, and, and he said, seemed to make some comments along those lines as well, Doctor, that he's understanding that that's the key thing. Uh, the, I guess the hidden monster here is, is, as you say, it's one thing to say, okay, somebody's presenting some of the symptoms and, and may well be COVID, so let's test them to see whether or not they have that. And we've heard those stories, many of them. But the asymptomatic element of this is something that I think has always been a, a concern here. I mean, I've heard some estimates that saying, that, oh, look, at, there could be twice as many, three times as many, you know, ten times as many cases that we don't know about because they're asymptomatic. This testing will, will at least give you a better indication then, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And we can't fight an enemy that we can't see. And I think if you look at reports from around the world, there was a paper recently in The Lancet that talked about um, – um, healthcare workers or others in outbreaks, and they saw 30 to, up to 30 to 50 percent of those in an outbreak were actually asymptomatic. So, put two and two together, these outbreaks that we're seeing in these congregate care settings, like long-term care and retirement homes, there is likely a lot of asymptomatic patients. And then you might say, well, why bother testing? Well, the bother is we can then isolate and contact trace those that are asymptomatic so we can prevent others from getting it and from having a disaster on our hands. That's the hope. 
I, I got to ask you another question, which is a little off topic, but I mean, obviously, since we're talking about healthcare in general, this is a great program, by the way, and I'm, I, I wish you all the success in this, but I got a couple of emails this morning when I mentioned that uh, we were going to be going in this direction and talking about this. Uh, when do we get back to normal with hospital systems? I, I, I guess one of the guys that emailed me here, a guy named Gary, uh, had his elective surgery canceled at St. Joe's, as it turns out, and is wondering, well, you know, is is it later this year? Or, you know, when when at what point, doctor, will you say, I think we can open the doors at least partially there and, and start moving again in the way things, quote unquote, used to be. Yeah, so I, th- I think there's a, there's a couple things. First of all, we have to have full confidence that we got this thing uh, moving in the right direction and that we're not going to have another surge. And again, this focus on long term care retirement homes and us getting that under control will certainly help us have confidence that the hospital is not going to get a surge because, again, we're not through this. And I want to remind your listeners, SARS, we got so happy when we got through the first wave and we celebrated. We so badly want to get out of the economic crisis. And sure enough, we had a second wave because we celebrated a little bit too early. So we have to be cautious on this. But there is a group working on this across the province and reporting into our table in Ontario Health. Um, that is exactly looking at this issue now, looking at the experiences from other jurisdictions and planning how we can start to reopen um, um, elective care. I wouldn't call it elective, but, you know, on a scheduled care. Sure. Yeah. And, um, and in what order. And there's obviously an ethics framework to that that um, they'll be looking very closely at um, because there's, there will be some patients that that have a higher priority to move forward faster than others but it's on everyone's heart to get this going Um, and I I expect over the next week or so we'll hear more details about timing and how we can start to ramp that up well and we've got a role to play in that as well as I've been telling our listeners the more that we're apart the sooner we'll be together and I think certainly applies to this doctor good luck with this program uh, and and thanks Please extend our thanks and gratitude to everybody on your staff and at all the systems that are through Niagara and St. Joe's and, of course, through Guelph as well uh, for, for the great work that you're doing. It's uh, greatly appreciated and never to be forgotten. Thanks, Bill, and thank you to all your listeners who are doing their job by um, staying in, at home. It's so important for us. Take care, Doctor. Okay, bye-bye. Dr. Tom Stewart, of course, CEO of St. Joe's uh, Healthcare System. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Strange goings on, of course, uh, with the daily briefings in Washington. Uh, Donald Trump, some time ago, of course, had pretty much uh, suggested that his vice president, Mike Pence, was going to be in charge of the COVID-19 process. Uh, it didn't take very many days for the uh, president to be at the podium every, each and every day. Some of these things go on for two, two and a half hours, and they're far more political than they are about uh, medical interventions. Uh, yesterday, though, he shocked an awful lot of people and surprised quite a few uh, with his claim that he was actually going to use an executive order to uh, shut down the border once again, suspend immigration into the U.S. due to the uh, coronavirus. Joining us to talk about this is Reggie Cicchini. Reggie is a Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. Reggie, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Uh, interesting stuff, and uh, the the tone of these m- meetings and uh, these daily briefings, if I can use that phrase, uh, seems to be getting a lot more political than it does about uh, about informing the people about how they're handling COVID nineteen, Reggie. Yeah, and it's for a number of reasons. Uh, a, the president doesn't have any avenues right now to be holding political rallies in an election year, so this is his opportunity to get his face out and a message across to his base. 
but also the president is using any opportunity he can to deflect any of the criticism that his administration has been taking uh, over there, what is perceived and now kind of shown to be inadequate response to the COVID-19 crisis across the United States. Uh, and, and as a result, of course, he's, uh, well, pointing the finger of blame wherever he can. Uh, the, uh, we know about the, the big hassle he's had off and on with uh, Governor Cuomo of New York and, and other governors, including some Republican governors that he's targeted. Yeah, look, the president is uh, is very much in the face of governors when they say something has gone wrong with the way that the administration has handled this situation. And then he lavishes praise on them if they say nice things about him. We've seen this back and forth and it's hit for tat with Governor Cuomo. Uh, the president over the last couple of briefings has used video clips of Governor Cuomo saying good things about the administration, uh, yet plays no clips of when Cuomo talks about how they have, you know, how the federal government has essentially left states cash strapped right now as they try to work their way through what's been an an inadequate rollout of testing. But it's not just Cuomo. The president has gone after Ohio's governor. He's gone after Republican governors from uh, the Midwest of the United States. It's simply a transactional relationship with with uh, with the U.S. president. Say something nice, and you get something nice in return. And I, I guess the governors are starting to understand that uh, because I, there's a need there that they're trying to do. So they're trying to placate him at the same time. But, but he's this is 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 this all being done at the stage, Reggie, with an eye towards November? Well, look, it's, it's November is constantly on the president's mind right now. He brought up the election during yesterday's briefing, uh, kind of making a point that you know the reason he's doing these right now, the reason that he's kind of going as he is right now, is because he understands that during an election, this is going to be brought up. He's made the comment over and over that if he weren't, uh, if he didn't go hard enough, he'd be criticized for that. But if he were to go too hard, he would be criticized for that. And it would be brought up during the election campaign. So this is something the president is thinking about right now. It's also the reason that we're starting to see him politicize these daily briefings and this virus in general more and more. Yesterday, he had the Army Corps of Engineers discuss how they're continuously helping out by building field hospitals but then he had them bring up the fact of how much wall has been built at the southern border and then just a few hours later started talking about an immigration ban. This is very uh, targeted messaging towards the base of his party that is going to be essential and crucial for him to hold on to for November. With that in mind, Reggie, was this announcement yesterday about suspending immigration uh, to play to that base as well? Well, it has to be, because it makes no other sense why the president has decided to use immigration right now in the middle of this health crisis. Uh, His own national security advisor came out today and said that the reason the president is doing this is because he wants to keep Americans safe. This is the same messaging that was used back in 2015 and 2016 when he started the conversations about the border. But it's Mm -hmm. worth pointing out right now that immigration is effectively stalled already. The borders are closed. Nobody's coming from Canada, Mexico, Europe, or many Asian countries. Consulates around the world have stopped processing visas. Uh, So it it doesn't make sense as to why immigration would be targeted. Uh, You know, the president is saying that he's doing it to keep Americans safe. 800,000 Americans are already sickened from this virus. The virus is already in the United States. Stopping temporary workers is going to potentially put further strain on industries like the food supply chain and healthcare that rely on these temporary workers. And this is the time of year where those people are going to be coming across to do this this work. Uh, the the temporary workers from oftentimes from Central American countries. We've got the same issue here in Canada, and of course our prime minister said to deal with that. Justin Trudeau said to deal with this. Is Trump even cognizant of the of the ramifications of an announcement like this? 
Well, you would think that he would because the president uses a specific type of temporary worker visa to uh, employ the people who work at a lot of his resorts, notably mm-hmm. in Florida. So the president fully understands that temporarily suspending immigration is potentially going to cause problems, not just for his own businesses, uh, but for uh, businesses around the U.S. that are really struggling right now, most notably in food, uh, food chain supply that are trying to keep up with the demand of more people buying more things and hoarding more things in their houses. Uh, it, it, it puts immense stress on these big farms and big agriculture industries who rely on this type uh, of worker. Now, the president hasn't officially signed the executive order. The White House hasn't released any details as to what's inside this executive order. Uh, but we can imagine or make an assumption here, since we have no other way of figuring it out, that the president is likely going to include some kind of exceptions for certain workers. This is just simply a wait and see game. But with that in mind, then, it's mission accomplished, I guess, as far as the president's concerned, because he got the headline that he wanted. Well, I mean, look, this president is all about headlines. He was already tweeting this morning about how the ratings for his daily briefings are better than The Bachelor, better than Monday Night Football. This is very simply a vanity project for the president. He wants to ensure that his name is front and center. If things are going wrong for the administration, he'll find a scapegoat to take that away from him so that he can talk about something else, get his name in the headlines. This is all uh, about the president simply making sure that his face is seen. This is no different than the president trying to get his name on the checks that were sent out uh, for stimulus to people, having nothing to really do with the president. He just wants his name on it because it makes it about him. He obviously wants to see the U.S. economy back in full gear uh, sooner than later. I think. Let's talk about this arbitrary deadline of May the 1st that he uh, is, is, in some people's minds, imposing on, on some of the governors. How, how's that going over, Reggie? Well, look, the president originally said Easter because it would be, quote unquote, a beautiful time. Then he extended that to May 1st. uh, And we haven't heard that there's going to be any kind of extension beyond that. We know that the president put out uh, this kind of phased reopening for states to have to follow, you know, with uh, making sure that they have no cases for 14 days, no deaths for 14 days in order to make their way through each phase to eventually get to a full reopening. But we now understand that those recommendations were just that. They were guidelines that could be followed by states. But governors get to make their own decisions, uh, despite the fact the president has said that he has total authority, which he doesn't. Governors are now going to simply uh, start avoiding those recommendations put forth. We saw Georgia yesterday say that, uh, you know, businesses essentially are going to start reopening between Friday and Monday. We're going to see it in Tennessee. South Carolina is going to follow that. These are very hard Republican Trump following states uh, that are doing this to appease the president. But this this quick to restart the economy is feared by not only the president's health experts, but even the World Health Organization that says we run the risk of seeing a second major outwave of uh, outbreak of this virus if people simply move too quickly. Well, and we've heard that from the World Health Organization. Of course, we know that the president does not see eye to eye with those guys anyway. But uh, the, the, the possibility uh, of, of a second spike, or, because basically, I guess they're opening borders up and saying, you know, th- this state here may still have a high infection rate, but it's okay if those people go over. And I already heard the Florida governor and the Georgia governor and the South Carolina governor suggesting that, look, if you guys do this, all these people from New York that are still carrying the virus, they may be asymptomatic, are going to come down here. What's going to happen with us? They, they, they don't seem to understand that, uh, that, you know, there's going to be some consequences to this. Well, I mean, look, in Georgia, that's, that's a prime example to talk about this right now. Yesterday, they reported uh, more than 50 deaths. They had uh, upwards of six or 700 new cases of this virus out there. Yet the government says 
that the uh, the governor rather says that even with 18,000 active cases, they're going to reopen the, the, their state's economy. Worth noting here that Brian Kemp just publicly announced two weeks ago that he had just recently found out that asymptomatic people can transmit the virus, despite the fact that that's been out there for months, and the Centers for Disease Control is located in his state. This goes to show mixed and confusing and a lack of messaging that's making its way from state leaders. But when you're talking about states reopening, despite the fact that, you know, several other states haven't even reached their peak yet, you have something like Maryland and Virginia, which just within the last 20 minutes posted more than 1,100 new cases, yet you're going to have states just a couple of borders away fully reopening, allowing for a possible transmission back and forth as people start moving. This is the major concern for uh, health leaders across the country, but also for state leaders who have decided that they're going to continue to practice shelter in place, and it puts them in a vulnerable position. But in a related story, and you guys have been talking about this for the last couple of days, of course, are the protests that are going on in some of these communities, including, by the way, in Ohio and and some of these other state capitals, uh, where people are pushing back against the very regulations that, that Donald Trump has put in place. Yeah, and I mean, look, some of it, you know, is is perceivably understandable that people are getting frustrated, that the money is not coming in, that potentially they're business owners and they're underwater right now waiting for the government to try and cut them some kind of cash, uh, even though the president says that he wants to start putting a potential bail out now for industries like the oil and gas sector based on what's going on right now. Uh, But the, the anger and emotion that's coming from some of these protesters goes far and beyond the crisis that the U.S. is in right now. We're seeing it become much more politically charged. We're seeing uh, buses pull up to these protests that are decked out in Trump campaign attire. We're seeing the conversation shift from health to things like abortion and things like gun rights. These are protests uh, that are kind of growing from what they once were just even a couple of days ago. And they're being egged on by President Trump, who is using words like liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia, liberate Minnesota to get them out of these uh, uh, orders that were put in place by the state's governors, which needs to be told the Constitution gives the governor the right to make the decision for their state. The president really doesn't have any right to take that away from them. He's simply just egging this on, creating a more dangerous situation. But these are really just a replacement for the Trump rallies, aren't they? I mean, and, and by the way, we're also hearing now that notwithstanding what uh, about the social distancing, that there's some stories going around now that the Trump rallies may actually start up again after May 1st. Well, look, the president doesn't have the rallies uh, to, to be able to get his message across, which is why we said these daily briefings have become much more politically charged, because it's a way to speak to his base. Uh, the president, you know, was even asked about uh, the last time he was holding rallies when the virus was still in the very onset of its uh, outbreak. And he was, you know, confused that he even had rallies, but he was having them in March. You know, the, the, the mm-hmm. Trump camp is really going to have to try and work hard to try and figure out a way to get the president's message out there. But, you know, you, you may see something like the president holding rallies in the states that have reopened that will allow for congregations uh, of people. The issue is here, the CDC is still saying 10 people, 50 people maximum, uh, depending on what state you're in, in order to have a kind of group setting. So if the president wants to have these big rallies, it's going to pose problems. Uh, it's these protests that are ongoing right now that could potentially pose additional health risks. If anybody's watching them, sometimes they're, you know, a couple of hundred deep standing side by side, not giving each other the space that they need to practice social distancing, which is creating all sorts of new crises for state and health leaders.
Well, and that's one of the the great ironies, I guess, of watching these daily briefings. And I know editorial in the New York Times today, Reggie, which I'm sure you saw, that suggested, look, we shouldn't even be covering these things anymore because he's just turning these into political rallies. But he's going on about stuff like this. And, and five seconds later, Dr. Fauci is at the podium there saying, yeah, but if you do this, this is what's going to happen. But he seems oblivious to that message. Well, and this is what we've been seeing from, uh, from 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 almost day one now, where the president is continuously undercut by the actual health experts who have a background and understanding uh, as to how these uh, situations unfold and how they have a broader impact on the American public. We saw it yesterday where Mike Pence was saying uh, something about testing, and he said, I can't quite answer this as well as uh, somebody like a, a doctor but he went on and continued to answer the question and didn't bring the doctor up. This is what we've seen uh, kind of time and time again. But that New York Times article, there are a lot of people that are uh, kind of using the same um, kind of terminology is that cable networks need to stop hearing what the president is saying because these daily news briefings aren't giving a lot of news. They're simply giving a platform for the president to be able to speak. It's kind of watching 2016 all over again where the media just bowed to president or then candidate Trump let him speak as long as they wanted, uh, and then kind of dealt with the ramifications afterwards. Uh, a lot of the cable networks now are only ducking in and ducking out, oftentimes when the experts come to the podium and ignoring it when the president's actually speaking, and they're taking some uh, heat from that, particularly from those on the right side of things. Exactly. Reggie, as always, we'll be watching for your reporting on this uh, over the next couple of days. Thanks so much for the time today, and stay healthy. Thank you. Take care. Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News, who's right down on the Beltway watching this happen on a daily basis. Always great to get Reggie's perspective on these sorts of things. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.